misdirection could lead you to personal victory behind the wrong door. For those of you that are not quite sure what's happening in that picture, which door is the boy's door? One says XX and one says XY. Well, they're going to have a happy time together, aren't they? Which is the boy's door? Left. Eugene's saying double X. Maybe you're XY, Ash. So, like I say, misdirection could lead you to personal victory, but in the wrong location. Because I'm sure if you went behind either door, you'd have success in your business, but you would be in the wrong place. Today, I want to launch a new teaching series, uh, and it's called He Is, I Am. We're teaching, God's asked us to sort of uh, do the next uh, couple of months, actually, uh, talking about identity. So we've been wrestling with what does God want us to do? What does that look like? And we've come up with this series we're calling He Is, I Am. And to explain that, it says, because He is, I am. Who's the most important person in us searching for our identity? He is. And out of who He is, we find out who we are. And, and I, I, was, I was thinking about this as I was pondering it several months ago when we, um, we started to, to search for what was coming up on the calendar, and the Lord really clearly guided us away from personal identity. I mean, we're going to talk about it today, but we're going to talk about it in a bigger picture, because the context of who we are is far greater than just our own circumstance. And that's going to come more clear today, and it's going to become more clear as we travel through the series. But um, I'll, I'll leave you to discover what that means for you as you fit into a bigger picture. Before I get into uh, speaking more about that and perhaps a little bit more toilet humor, I, I just want to highlight perhaps why we might be talking about this. Because, you know, when I prepare uh, and studying God's Word and bringing, bringing what I feel to share— I'm always um, asking that question, well, why would I be doing this? What's the point behind this? What's on God's heart behind this? And, and this morning, uh, perhaps a little bit provocative, potentially sharp. I'm going to try and keep it soft. But, um, you know, when we look at society and we look around and we see what's happening in the world, there's some real challenges. And, in fact, as I've said on the screen, there's some problems with people today. And I'm, I'm going to stay away from gender issues I'm going to stay away from politics. I'm going to stay away from the economy. But I might talk about the church. I might talk about family. Because we've really got to be introspective if we're going to allow God's Word to shape us and mold us. We have to be honest. We have to look inside and we have to understand um, how do we fit inside what God's sharing corporately. And, and that's your challenge, but I might just help by pushing on some doors. You're welcome. So, so here's, here's a thought that I had uh, during the week. New Zealanders are so, uh, if I said number eight why, what does that mean to you as a cultural statement for New Zealanders? DIY. We can do anything with a piece of number eight wire. That was how this nation was founded. Piece of number eight fencing wire. We can fix something. We can make something. We can open a car. We can make a car go. been done before. 
But the problem with the DIY mentality is that we think we've got to do it all for ourselves by ourselves. And we feel empowered these days. We've got access to unlimited information just in our phones. We can access all the data that we ever need to rule the world. But we think we've got to do it on our own. We think empowerment gives us the right to independence, and that's a problem. Because we've got all these people trying to fix the problem by themselves. And independence is actually the antithesis of the way God's designed us to live in community. Because independence means apart from one another. Interdependence means that we have to rely on one another. Which is kingdom? Apart or together? Together. So it's a problem that we see people trying to run off and change the world, but they're not connecting into God's bigger picture. I want to talk about that today. Some people, when I work with them, they confuse delay with discipline or punishment. I mean, just to correct that for you, if you think, oh, God's punishing me because I don't see all my promises in my life today, go and read the story of Joseph. Genesis 37 onwards and read the promises, the dreams that God gave him and the delay that was necessary for Joseph to be able to carry those promises. Read the story of David from his calling in 1 Samuel 16, I think it is, where he's anointed to be king and then waits while God prepares him and prepares the nation. Maybe David wasn't ready. Maybe he was. Maybe Israel wasn't ready for David. But we get frustrated, and I've shared my testimony, or should I say confession, many times that I often try and help God out by hurrying him along. And I've also given testimony of how that doesn't work for me. But we have this mindset where we just got to hurry up and get things done by next Friday. And I'm guilty of that, and I own that, and I use that confession to pull myself back sometimes. Sometimes we sing songs and we say, God, would you change me? God, I want more of you. Fill my heart. Set me on fire. But we don't realize there's a price to pay for the promise. And we ask for conditioning and we ask for more of God, but we're not sure we want to pay the price. We expect comfort. We say things like, well, that's my personality type. I just won't step out in faith like that. I didn't find that in the Bible. You know, God used the most timid of people. Think Moses. Stuttered, couldn't talk, wasn't full of confidence and doubted himself because he had a bad past, raised in the wrong house, didn't think he was called to lead the Hebrews. God says, be quiet. I am who I am. You will be who you will be because I am. can't limit ourselves and our journey with God because of our mindsets. And then this last one's a little bit potentially a time bomb, but, uh, you know, people, I, I find even in church, oh, man, like, this is where it hurts more when I see this. And in church, people withhold their trust because it's conditional. Love is conditional in many church situations. Oh, well, you know, like, I've been hurt before. You know, like, church leaders always want something. So I'm just going to hold back. We'll just dip our toe in the water occasionally. We, might, we won't sign up for anything because then we might get asked to do something more. But, but it happens, doesn't just happen this way. It happens across the aisles. Or the worst one is when someone takes offense on behalf of someone else. 
And they say, well, you hurt that person, so I'm happy with you, and I'm not going to trust you because you hurt them. Secondhand offense is the worst in church, but it's real. But what does it do? It just squashes what the Holy Spirit wants to do. It squashes the life that God's called us to live. It squashes everything inside of us, and it misdirects and misguides us. And so we might have a happy life. We might enjoy success, but we're in the wrong destination. We're never ever where God intended us to be or what he sees as our best life. And there's a great saying in leadership. It says, why would you settle for good when you can have best? Because God's designed the best for you. And that's what I want us to talk about today. I want us to, I want us to, I want us to walk into what God's got for us together. And you could just flip all of those and make them into a positive, And that would be a good start for all of us to live our lives that way. I'm not going to do that. I'll leave that to you. But Flipping those and making the opposite would be really helpful because it's what I call the I generation. People think, well, my life is all about me and my comfort, my preference and my goals. And if I get that sorted, then life will be good for me. I will, I will end my days happy. And God would say, no, no, life's far bigger than that. It is not about you. I generation is a twist of the truth that the enemy uses to lead us away from God's best. And as we've been singing all morning and praying before you got here, is God, would you break us? Would you help us to yield before you? And uh, that's the theme for this morning. Misdirection may lead you to personal victory in the wrong destination. And to prove that, let's look at a couple more signs. Have you seen this one in a toilet before? Men to the left, because women are always right. You've seen that in a bathroom? Oh, have you seen this one? Which door would you choose? Which door is for the men? Now, you're not going to get this one confused, I'm sure. All the men head to the left. Because the women are right. What about this one? This one I like. So that's clear, right? But I was thinking of Isaac when I found this one. That's cool, eh? And this one. I can't believe we're doing toilet humor in church. What about this one? Let me say it this way. Why did I show you those? Behind every door is a destination. Misdirection will lead you to personal success, completion, but you might be in the wrong destination. But, this is why I did this, that there is the only throne you're allowed to occupy. That there is the only throne you're allowed to occupy. And when you build your life on preference, comfort, personality, or agenda, you're putting yourself on the throne. And God is saying to us, our identity is not found in our comfort, our preference, our priority, or our agenda. It's found when He is on the throne in our lives. Now, you can, He'll let you sit on that throne. No problems. Any other throne? You're going to get in trouble. 
So finding our identity must lead us back to him and putting him on the throne. We've started this, uh, well, it's been a while now, but in our prayer meetings, we now, the very first thing we do is, is the phrase we use is we establish the throne of Jesus in our midst. Because when we put him on the throne and pray from that perspective, things should go well. But when we start our prayer meetings with our agenda and our preference or what we think we should do, we're on the throne, which puts us in the bathroom. So how do we find our identity? We need to work out who's on the throne. If you're taking notes, if you want a title, this is the title for today's message. Who is on the throne? And, and please hear my heart today. My heart is for all of us, and, 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 and me included, because there's been some real wrestling going on in me this week and last week as I was preparing. Um, th- there's a wrestling going on to make sure that we all put God on the throne in our lives personally. And when we do that, then collectively it should go well for us. But this has been, you're going to hear some confession today because this has been a challenge for me. Because I want God's very, very best. But the only way I can access his best is if I choose to lose. Those who lose their life will gain their life. So my hope for all of us is that we will find God's very, very best by letting him sit on the throne in our life. We're going to see the story of a guy that did this. There's a... a something I put up on the social yesterday, who I am is defined by whose I am. So when I say I'm a Christian, when I say I'm a disciple of Jesus, when I say I'm a son of God, I'm declaring whose I am. Well, my definition then of identity flows out of who God says I am. Who I am is defined by whose I am. You know, um, This is really the only relationship in our lives where we should have this application. I'm not saying that your identity as a wife is determined by what your husband says. I'm not saying that your life as a child is defined by what your parents say. Let's be very, very careful we don't twist this. Our relationship with God as our heavenly father, as our creator, we're made in his image. This is what defines who we are. And I always say to people when I'm working with them, discipling them, I'm saying, look, the very best thing you can do to sort your life out is run after God and find out who he is. And in discovering who he is, you'll discover who you are. But if you try and discover who you are outside the context of who God is, then it's going to be messed up. And as much as I really uh, value life coaching and, and I've done a lot of that myself, in the absent, with God absent in the mix of that, people are discovering the wrong thing. Misdirection might lead them to personal success, They'll just be in the wrong destination. So let's define who we are by understanding whose we are. I want to I want to look today at a character in the Bible. I want to look at one instance in his life. It's, it's the life of Jacob. Uh, Jacob is the grandson of Abraham, the second son of Isaac, and he's uh, he's got an interesting journey. Jacob means deceiver. When he was born, he's a twin. He came out second. He was clutching or grasping at the heel of his brother Esau. And and he gets given this name Jacob, and then he decides that's his identity, and he lives his life like that. We see it because he deceives his brother and steals the birthright of the firstborn son over a stew, like cooking meat. We then see him come up with this plan with his mother, 
and he dresses himself in animal's fur and he deceives his father. His father says, who are you? He says, well, touch my arm and you'll see I'm Esau, your son, your firstborn. Robs his brother of the blessing. Then he gets a bit worried about life, so he runs away. His, his mum says, well, you better get out of here because your brother's he's hot, man. He's going to kill you. So he takes off to his uncle's place, ends up um, marrying, having a family, building a business, being very, very successful. You could say he was having personal victory in the wrong destination. He realizes that it's time for him to go back to the land of his father, face who God says he is, and go on a journey. And that's the bit that I want to look at today. So we've got our... Um, We've got our text for today, Genesis 32, if you're taking notes or turning your uh, Bibles uh, to Genesis chapter 32, and we're just reading from 24 to 30. This is our main passage for today. So Jacob is on his way home. He's really worried that his brother's going to come and meet him and kill him and all his children, because remember, he stole off his brother. And so what he does is he divides his family into two camps, and he says, well, you go that way, and you go that way, and then Esau can't kill both of you, so at least I'll get half my family out of this if we have to run. And he takes them across the river. Uh, the name of the river is the Jabbok River, and it kind of in Hebrew sounds like his name, which I think is something in that, but I didn't study it. And then he goes to have a sleep. And in the dark, this is what we read, Genesis 32, verse 24. Jacob was all alone in the camp, and a man came and wrestled with him until the dawn began to break. So all night, wrestling match. When the man saw that he could not win the match, he touched Jacob's hip and wrenched it out of his socket. Then the man said, let me go for the dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. What is your name? The man asked. He replied, Jacob. Your name will no longer be Jacob, the man told him. From now on, you will be called Israel because you have fought with God and with men and have won. Please tell me your name, Jacob said. Why do you want to know my name, the man replied. And then he blessed Jacob there. Jacob named the place Peniel, which means face of God. For he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been spared. We're going to unpack the story today to, to glean something from it for ourselves to find out what God wants to show us personally. And I read this story, and you could basically say that Jacob had an encounter with God. Beginning, he thought it was a man. I'll explain why in a minute. But at the end of it, we go, oh my goodness, he's had an encounter with God. And the way that I read the Bible, when I see something like that happen, I'm like, well, how did that happen? Like, what did... What did Jacob actually do to get an encounter like that? So, so I've said this before, often I'll read the Bible backwards. I'll, I'll read a story like this and I'm like, oh, wow, you know, like what's in this for me? But how on earth did he get that opportunity? I read backwards till I find what caused it. So if you look back, you've got to understand there's something that sets you up for an encounter. And Jacob did this and we can read it in verse 9. Jacob positions himself before God. Listen to his prayer in Genesis 32, verse 9. Jacob prayed, O God, my father of my grandfather Abraham, and God of my father Isaac. O Lord, you told me, return to your own land and to your relatives. You promised me I will treat you kindly. 
I'm not unworthy. I'm not worthy of all the unfailing love and faithfulness you've shown me, your servant. When I left home and crossed the Jordan River, I own nothing except my walking stick. Now my household fills two large camps. Oh Lord, please rescue me from the hand of my brother Esau. I'm afraid he's coming to attack me along with my wives and children. But you promised me I will surely treat you kindly and I will multiply your descendants until they become as numerous as the sands on the seashore. Too many to count. This prayer is amazing. This prayer is a prayer of humility. This is a prayer where Jacob gets himself before God and says, God, you said you would bless me. God, you told me to go and here I am. God, you promised that this would happen and he's holding God account for it. And, and this is a, a crazy thing. Like he's, he's literally standing toe to toe with God saying, well, you said, so you better be good for it. And in the Hebrew mindset, they call this humility. They literally say that to be vulnerable and humble before God is to believe what he says. Because I don't see God striking him down with lightning or plaguing him with boils. He didn't make a mistake. He stood toe to toe, face to face with God and said, well, you said it, so I'm going to believe it. We would do well to start there. I mean, that's all I've been doing this morning during worship while the team are leading us in the songs. It's totally in line with what's happening. And even I'm like, oh God, you said you would bless us. And I don't feel like that. And I'm frustrated because I can't see everything I believe. But God, you said, and you are powerful and you will bring it to pass because you are good all the time. We've got to stand in confidence for what God has said. We've got to accept that God's going to prepare us for what's coming. And we've got to accept that God knows something way better than what we know. Let's look at verse 24. Because I want to unpack some of these things, and I'm going to do them quickly. Maybe. Jacob considers his opposition to be a man. We read this, the narrator who writes this uh, many years later is capturing this, and they refer to this opposition as a man all the way through. See, I believe at the time Jacob thought he was literally wrestling a man and not God. And the question is, how often do we think our struggles are against flesh and blood? How many times do we think that someone is standing in opposition against us? Or worse, we go, well, that devil, he's messing in my life. And most of the time, it's God trying to shift you and change you and bring you to a place of of surrender and humility in order that you would allow him to do just what he wants to do because he knows it's best for you. Are we blaming God or are we focused on what God wants to do? And and Jacob's wrestling this man and and, and he he wrestles all night. He says, like, he went to bed uh, and they didn't have TV back then, so they went to bed when it was dark And he puts his head down. He wrestles till sunrise. But it's not a man, is it? We know that because we read the end of the story. Consider this thought. Imagine that God would wrestle with you and not prevail. I mean, that blows my mind. The creator of the universe the one who put the stars in the sky, the one who counts the grains of sand on the seashore, the one that knows the numbers of hairs on your head in the days of your life, the one who ordained your eternity, not just your life, your eternity is ordained by him. He says, well, I'm going to wrestle with you, but I won't win. I'll hold back. 
Am I the only one that gets blown away by that thought? God is in your life wrestling with you, choosing not to win and defeat you. Because he crush you like an ant if he wanted to. He doesn't want to. He's got a better purpose in mind. Perhaps, perhaps God is trying to do something in your life. Perhaps God is trying to take you somewhere. And if I want to pray, God, would you come and wrestle with me? It's not a bad idea. The darkness of the night, the wrestling in the prayer closet, God is trying to lead us into a promise. Let's look at verse 25. Verse 25, this is the man saw that he wouldn't win the match. I mean, that means Jacob's fighting back. Like, you know, like, it's not like, you know, like, I bet JP, but you have an arm wrestle with Liam every now and then, and you probably let him win occasionally, you know, or make him feel like he's winning. Like, God's like that with us, eh? He draws us into a place, wrestles with us, we think we might win, just so we keep fighting. And I, I love that Jacob didn't give up all night. And, and I've got to be honest, this is my personal struggle. I carry sore muscles, bruised bones, and a headache from all the obstacles I bump into every week. And literally, I just feel like giving up sometimes. But I read this and I go, well, God, you're in this. I've got to be determined and I've got to be persistent because that's the example I read in the Scriptures. Some days I just wonder if it's worth it. I mean, I pray, it sounds like whining. I sing, it sounds like groaning and moaning. Cry a lot. You know, you come into the office and for maybe two hours a week, it looks like I'm in control. (laughs) And then God says this. Price are you willing to pay? What price are you willing to pay for the inheritance that only God can bring? Will you fight all night? Do you fight regardless of the obstacles? And as you're about to see, do you allow God to break you? Bring the presence and the promise into your world. And as I was writing my notes a couple of weeks ago, wrestling with this concept, I just, um, I wrote this next quote in my notes. And it became my prayer. <laughs> got to be willing to give all that we are to see God provide all that only he can. Fully surrender to God's will. 
I mean, we see that in, in, in the second part of verse 25, that when the man, who is God, we know, saw that he couldn't defeat Jacob, he touched the socket of his hip and his leg was dislocated. I mean, uh, there's plenty of commentary on this. There's one commentary I read, and it says this, the man, Jacob's opponent, deliberately cripples Jacob at the point of his greatest strength. Because you're... you're, you're this muscle here and your, your joint here is the strongest part of your body. Biggest muscle, biggest connection. Purposely takes him out where he's strongest. And then I think about it and, and what's coming, because what's next? What's happening the next day for Jacob? He's meeting his brother, right? God purposefully takes away his power, one, to fight. Because he can't fight with a wobbly leg. Not in those days. Takes away his power to fight, but it also takes away his power to run away. But there's a reason for this. See, God wants to take us into a place of weakness in order to bring revelation. Jacob's like, well, I've got to face this. And again, uh, some of the commentaries I read and looking into the layers of the context and the history and the people, um, the Israelite people, God, oh, go back. God says this. We've got to fully know our weakness. But even more than knowing our weakness, we must know the power of God. But more than knowing the power of God, we've got to understand that we've got a right to claim that power. Like, please don't finish your prayer with, oh God, I am humble and I am weak. Don't put the full stop there. Yes, Jacob prays in Genesis 32, yes, I'm humble and I don't deserve it and I'm not good enough for what you've got for me, but you promised. You are powerful. You are the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You're the God of the promise and I stand here as your son claiming that as my own because it's part of our inheritance. That's part of the promise for now. That's not a destination. That's the way we live. That's the lifestyle is His power in us. The same power that raised Christ from the dead lives in you. So we must know our weakness. We must realize our weakness. I know my greatest strengths are my weakness. But more than that, must I know the power of God and His work through me? Yeah? Can you say, come on, I'm preaching better than you're responding. Can you say amen to that? Because that's a really big revelation for some of you. It's changing the way I'm praying. May it change the way that you pray and what you expect to see God do through your prayers. Perhaps this place of weakness, perhaps this place of weakness is really an invitation into a revelation, a greater revelation, a bigger revelation of who God is. Paul lives his entire life, firstly persecuting the church, then trying to build it with Jesus he goes all over Asia Minor. He plants churches. He gets shipwrecked. He gets beaten. They chuck rocks at him, hoping to kill him. He sees the dead raised, the sick healed, and he gets to the end, and still Jesus has to say to him, Paul, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. About five years ago, Aaron Boyens, who some of you know, he's ministered here with music. He gave me this scripture verse one night. 
and I tucked it away. Matthew chapter 11, it's from the Message Bible. Jesus says, are you feeling weak? Are you feeling tired? Are you burned out on religion? Jesus says, come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me and watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Jesus says to us, his strength is made perfect in our weakness. You getting that? Three more verses. Dawn is breaking, spring has sprung. We're saying spring has sprung in this church. We're saying it prophetically. We're saying it because we believe it's true. We believe God has led us out of winter and the heaviness and the darkness of winter into the new life of spring. What do you expect to see in spring? Well, lambs bouncing around, daffodils rising up, there's blossoms on the trees, there's new leaves, there's growth on the farms and the agricultural world. But let us not make a mistake. Let's not make the mistake of confessing something that Jacob did. So there's a tension in the story. You can see it on the screen. Jacob was wrestling for a blessing. And the mistake we could make is in the season of spring is sprung and seeing the new growth and seeing people come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior and seeing some, some momentum in the church, we could make the mistake and think, well, God, would you bless us? Because I want you to see in the story, God's got a bigger object, objective in mind. Let us not make the mistake that Jacob did. Let us not be misdirected. Let us not fall into the trap of the tension of the story and say, God, would you bless us in spring? God has also got a far bigger objective in mind. Verse 27, the man says to him, who are you? What did you say your name is? Do you remember... In the story I referred to it earlier, some of you will know it well. When Jacob goes before his father dressed in the animal fur, he says, who are you? What does he say? I'm Esau, I'm your firstborn son. He deceives. He robs his brother of the birthright and the blessing and he goes away. He then deceives his Family in greater ways, he gets all sorts of uh, crazy strategies for farming. God blesses him and multiplies him. He realizes he's in the wrong destination. He comes back and this man says, who do you say you are? And finally, he says, I'm a deceiver. Jacob. Sometimes God has to break us before we understand who we are. Before we're willing to confess our natural state. I'm Jacob. I'm a deceiver. And, and we've got to come to that place of humility. You can see it on the screen. You've got to come to that place where you see yourself as God sees you. But if God's seeing you in that way, it's never judgment. Might be conviction, but never condemnation. We've got to see ourselves as we are and allow God to bring his rebirth and his, his blessing into our life. And rebirth is a word we've used a lot here in this church. I'll talk about it in a minute because we've transitioned in rebirth. 
God's done something in us. The man says, well, no longer will your name be Jacob. Your name will be Israel. And in this, looking at this, it means God fights. God fights, it replaces his name Jacob. It becomes not just a promise, but a call to a faith. It becomes a place where God says, well, you're going to get the victory, but I'm going to bring it by my strength. Israel, God who fights for you. God is drawing Jacob into the covenant promise, the same promise he gave his father Isaac and the same covenant promise he gave his grandfather Abraham. You will be blessed. The passage of scripture that we opened today was from Deuteronomy chapter 7, starting at verse 7. God says to his people, you are a people holy to the Lord. Your Lord God has chosen you to be his treasured possession. Guys, you have been chosen to be God's treasured possession. The scripture goes on to say, not because you are a large nation or because you are strong and famous, but it's because the Lord loves you and he's keeping his oath that he swore to your fathers. God calls Jacob out of a place of brokenness into a place of promise. And as I said before, that name, Israel, is both a promise and a call to faith. As a church, we've been called out of a season into a new season. God said, we'd like us to, to go through a rebirth process. We, we were North End Church for many years. We've become Zion, the place where God's manifest presence dwells. And that name is both a promise and a call to faith. It's who we are as a people. It's who God says we are. It's who he's calling us to be. If only we would be broken to realize the revelation he's giving us is not by our strength, our cleverness, or our strategy. It's by his power at work through us. It applies to Jacob as he prepares to face Esau, and it applies to us in the same way. You see, it says on the screen, we are, we are Zion. We are the people of God, and, and they're not the only people of God, but this is what God's called us to as a community of faith, as a family. He said, I'm going to bring my presence into Tiamudu, and he wants us to be a part of it. The people that God's calling into this church are understanding that God's calling us to do something as part of his promise for Tiamudu. Each one of us has a part to play. If you want to understand more about Zion and the name and the journey and the rebirth and transformation that God's been speaking to us about, just check it out on YouTube. Just look for our YouTube channel, Zion Media. You can find it via the website, um, which is on the back of our uh, information booklet. But go and watch it and just understand what God is saying to us and what he's calling us into. Because we've got to flip the tension over. See, Jacob wrestled for a blessing. God was wrestling for identity. Jacob wanted a blessing. And God said, oh, I'm going to give you much more than that. Releases an identity through a promise. And he blessed, he blessed Jacob anyway. But what was more important to God was the identity. So what I've had to come to is a realization that what God wants to do is far bigger than just me. I've had to lay down my agenda. I've had to lay down my time frame. I've had to lay down my comfort and my preference. And I've had to say, God, what you want to do is far bigger than that. I wonder what it means for you. 
I wonder what it means for you. When you wrestle with God in the darkness of the night, ask him to break you. I, I think God's calling us to give up what we perceive to be control, to put him on the throne and let him do what only God can do. And why would we do that? Because our identity is found in who God says we are. We are Zion. We are the people who host God's presence, where his manifest presence dwells, where, the, you know, where we can lead others into that place. Zion in the Bible was a gathering place of worship. Zion in the place was a gathering place for people to come and find freedom and wholeness and healing from God. And we're part of that. We're part of something much, much bigger. If I could get the band to come back, I want to sing that Waymaker song again. Because I was here early this morning and praying while the band were practicing, and I just felt God put his anointing on it for today, that he will make the way where we might think that there is no way. God is saying to us as a church that our promise is far bigger than we would even realize. That's why I loved the opportunity to take a group of people to Acts National Conference this week. And if you ever want to come, just ask. It's not exclusive. But, but when people come and hang out in that environment with me and they see what God's doing in Acts Church New Zealand and beyond and Europe and, and Africa, they realize that we're actually part of something bigger. You're worshiping with 700 other people and the, God's presence is touching pastors and leaders and, and other people that come along. There's youth there and there's an amazing kids program. And we suddenly realize it's actually not about us. It's not about us in Tiamunu either. We're part of something bigger. We're part of something greater. We're part of what God wants to do. Where does it start? It starts with you giving up control, surrendering, to God's lead and recognizing you're part of something much, much bigger. I describe it like this. It's like if you imagine a jigsaw puzzle. God is establishing a jigsaw puzzle as a picture and every single one of us are a part of that jigsaw puzzle. And how many of you have ever done a really big jigsaw to find that you're missing one or two pieces? Anyone else? And how do you feel when there's a piece missing? Stink. Why? because the picture's not finished. So what if we put together the pieces of this jigsaw puzzle that God's called us to in Tiamudu and there's one or two pieces missing? It's not complete. Why do I say that? Because you matter. Your part matters in the greater scheme of things. We're not independent, we're interdependent. I need you and you need me. That's the way God designed us to live. Why are we giving up control to God? so He can do something magnificent through us. How do you do that? This final saying. It's all about saying yes to something major, which helps you to say no to all the minors. When you give your life to something bigger, you get to serve something much, much bigger. Why don't you stand? Lord, today we see what it takes to access your revelation. But Lord, we need to yield ourselves and be broken in order that you would make a way into something much, much bigger. 
Lord, we confess that we can't put our hands on the steering wheel. We can't sit on the throne and expect to be Lord of our lives. We must yield ourselves to you. So today, as we sing this song, God, would you come and find us in that place? Would you touch our hearts, each one of us? Would you reveal to us those things that need to be broken? And would you help us to confess that you are the way maker? You are the one who makes a way. And Lord, we commit this vision of Zion to you. And we pray that you would do something magnificent through each one of us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.